Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Camille Weber. We're here with Dawn Bayard, um, and this is the second half of the interview. Um, so my first question for you, Dawn, is what organizations were you involved in um, during the wine industry, and how did you see that evolve, or how did your involvement evolve? Uh, I was Early on, I was president of the Oregon Wine Growers Association uh, for one year. That's basically what we all did. We took our turn <laughs> as, as uh, president. And uh, my biggest achievement there was uh, trying to get the two organizations. There was a, one in the Willamette Valley, and then there was a strong one in the Southern Oregon, too. Mm-hmm. So I, I felt that we should have a statewide uh, organization. So I, I set that going, and the president the next year was able to achieve that and bring those, those two together uh, so into one total organization. And uh, uh, I didn't have a whole lot of time for <laughs> a lot of meetings because of... Uh, the way we were structured with uh, Carol and I both having jobs uh, outside of the wine industry. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were times during my uh, career that I had to make that decision again and again that I was not gonna jump out of my profession into the wine industry full time. Mm-hmm. Uh, during uh, the time in Salem, uh, I was on the initial uh, development of the Chemeketa program on that board uh, to kick that off and get that program going. Mm -hmm. And then I did start the wine growers meeting in Salem in 1978, uh, which is uh, still going today. And as far as I know, it's the only educational meeting, uh, regularly scheduled meeting going on in the state with wine growers. Uh, and it's uh, it's still still going, and I think it'll it'll continue past my involvement. Mm-hmm. Um, over the years, uh, uh, because Carol and I did not uh, jump in full time, uh, we had a limited involvement in the industry uh, for that reason, uh, and the fact that we lived in Salem mm-hmm. and not the Portland or, or Dundee area. Uh, we haven't been as uh, involved as as uh, much as lots of other people have, uh, but I still play poker with some of the wine guys. <laughs> still active in that area. That some of the the uh, the old the old regime, uh, and uh, uh, I I am proud that uh, I was able to in exiting the wine industry, uh, able to, to leave uh, my vineyard uh, in the hands of, of Brooks Winery, uh, which is next door to my daughter's house, <laughs> which we can, <laughs> we can see from here, who, li- who owns five acres of the, the original vineyard, Heather, uh, name's Heather Kirk, and uh, uh, that 
that allows me the ability to uh, be still be part of the industry and part of of Brooks's uh, uh, future, and I can sit on her deck and uh, smoke a cigar and have a glass of uh, Rastaban Pinot Noir and <laughs> watch the grapes <laughs> grow and tell them how they should do things. <laughs> so. In your opinion, what makes a successful wine? Does it come down to the land, to the winemaking, or does marketing play a big role in that? Uh, marketing plays a huge role mm -hmm. in it. And let me get back to the question, original question, but let me expand on marketing. I, I think marketing is the point at which my wife Carolyn and I decided that we had to do something different, that we were spread too thin, that we had to unload something from our life. Um, and uh, so we decided, uh, based on our experience with the winery, we were we were we had great fun selling to retail. Uh, we enjoyed the winemaking process. We enjoyed everything except the part of marketing. And marketing uh, was something that she did not want to take on and I did not want to take on. And marketing to me is, is, has to, is takes a certain skill. And I would say, generally speaking, winemakers are not, don't have that skill. <laughs> and they don't want that skill. Uh, but I particularly did not enjoy marketing because it, you work all week on getting something done and, and Monday morning it's the same thing again. Mm -hmm. Now personally I'm more of a project oriented guy mm -hmm. and I like to do uh, creative things. I, I, I like to think about doing things differently. Uh, I, I've had experiences in my life I, working for the the uh, Port of Portland, I was able to do the first environmental statement in Oregon. Working for Department of Transportation, I was able to do the first uh, state highway plan. Uh, I put together the environmental section in the state. I, was, I put together the scenic byway program for the state. I, uh, I helped put together the federal program before that. Uh, so I've done lots of exciting things and I've in the wine industry I've helped put things together in different uh, boards but uh, uh, but it it demonstrates my interest in in uh, uh, creating things mm -hmm. and getting those going but a lack of interest in managing them once, once they're completed and done. That to me is the boring part and I, I like to move on to something new. So uh, that's, that prompted us to, to sell Hidden Springs Winery. Mm -hmm. uh, so that because of the marketing that needed to be done at that point in time, uh, because other people were starting wineries and they were well funded and they were able to um, bring people in to do the marketing and that meant I had to do the marketing too and personally I, I did not have the time mm -hmm. 
And, but I could have hired people to do that, but that would have taken uh, more uh, wine to sell, right. more barrels, more storage, more equipment, and an investment that uh, Carol and I weren't willing to make. So at that time, that was 1994, we sold the winery building to Gino Cuneo. Who changed the name from Hidden Springs to Cuneo Cellars, and he carried on from there in that building. But the fortunate part was that the winery building was separate from the vineyard, so selling the winery became uh, a thing that uh, could be easily done uh, and still keep the vineyard, mm -hmm. which was my first love. So uh, from that point on, I became just the vineyard manager and, and uh, selling grapes to Gino Cuneo first and then, and then later to Jimmy Brooks. Mm -hmm. And uh, enjoyed that part of it and as something that I could do and still continue my career. If I had gone the other way, it's possible to say I'd still be working today. <laughs> Whereas I've been retired for right. 15 years. <laughs> so uh, I think we made the better of the two decisions and we're still married. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that was a good, a positive right. impact. Uh, you, you wanted to talk about wine though. Yeah, the success of the product itself. Yeah. So that's marketing, but what about does it start in the land, or <clears throat> does the magic happen with the winemaker and manipulating? I think the magic starts in the vineyard. That's, mm -hmm. that's my philosophy, that the vineyard uh, development and the, and the working together of the winemaker and the grower together mm -hmm. to make that happen. Uh, yeah, that's an integral part of the situation, uh, and it all a lot of it comes down to how you write your contract when you sell your grapes and and who does what and it was always uh, in my contracts uh, that when I sold the, the grapes to a winery that if they wanted to to lessen the crop mm -hmm. like if I was going to produce two tons per acre uh, two and a half tons per acre and they wanted uh, one and a half tons per acre to increase the quality of the product, then, then they should be the ones to pay for that mm -hmm. effort to do the thinning uh, so that they, they uh, didn't come back and say, oh, it's too thick yet, we need to go back again. They, they made that judgment. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that takes a, a pretty good involvement between the winemaker and the grower mm -hmm. uh, so that both are happy and uh, that's, that has to happen or else the results are not, not good because the interests are different. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, so I think that's an integral part of it. Uh, uh, the, the other aspect, uh, of course, is, is in the vineyard management side is uh, exposure to sun and, and mm -hmm pulling leaves and what side do you pull the leaves from and and all of that has an influence on the mm -hmm. on the quality of the the wine mm 
And when you decide to pick and harvest. Uh, when you decide to pick, when you, and that's, that should be the winemaker's decision, when to mm -hmm. pick, uh, given availability of labor mm -hmm. and given the availability of, uh, of sunlight. And <laughs> because in the past, it's been, it has been cooler, we've had cooler years than in the past five, five years, it's been relatively easy when to pick. I mean, the last two years, we've picked Pinot when it needed to be picked, not when the weather was changing. Mm -hmm. But we've had a lot of times when the weather was a determining factor when we picked. Uh, storms were predicted to come in, uh, and we had to get the grapes off before the storm came in. Was From, there a year that uh, really sticks out for you? Uh, 82, I think, was a cool year. And yeah. Yeah, and that was a year, yeah, years like that, we made uh, uh, a wine called Pacific Sunset, which uh, is uh, a blend of Pinot and Riesling. And then we make Pinot Noir Blanc, mm -hmm. which was a, a white, almost a white wine out of a red grape. And that, that's, that's what you do sometimes when you put an emphasis on those varieties or those, those products uh, when the the full red wine that you really would like to produce, the, the grape Pinot Noir is not possible mm -hmm. due to the grapes not being quite ripe enough. Or the rain comes in and gets you and it dilutes the, the wine. Mm -hmm. So, what is your favorite wine to make and what is your favorite wine to drink? Mm. I'm very fond of Riesling. <laughs> <laughs> and dry Riesling. Mm -hmm. But I also love Pinot Noir. Uh, and of course I had never had Pinot Noir before I started this. <laughs> this mm -hmm. was my first, first real experience when we planted the grapes back in the old days. To, 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 and even tasting the grapes, it was my first experience with doing that. Uh, mm -hmm. It was a wonderful experience, surprises, uh, not knowing how sweet they really were, and yeah. how many seeds there were in <laughs> Did you ever anticipate Pinot Noir becoming kind of uh, the varietal known to Oregon? Um, Oregon being known as this Pinot Noir um, producer, or? Not when we planted. There was, there was that hope in the background, but when we planted, we didn't know which variety was going to be our variety. Mm. I mean, uh, it could have been Riesling, it could have, could have been Chardonnay, it could have been Pinot Noir. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't all that impressed with the Chardonnays that we planted. Uh, we had a clone. It was probably designed for California, and and I personally never made a Chardonnay out of my grapes that I, I liked. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a hard it was a hard sell because California had the market for Chardonnay wrapped up and uh, with a lot of oak and a lot of alcohol and and a different a different uh, type of wine than than uh, we can grow here. Mm -hmm. We just can't produce that kind of Chardonnay. So we tried to tout it as a food chardonnay, but to go with food when 
California Chardonnays are a meal in themselves, but <laughs> but I never made one I really liked, and that was discouraging. So I pulled my Chardonnay out, and I planted Pinot Gris. Uh, so I, I have no Chardonnay, and now now they have new clones for Chardonnay. Uh, yeah, that are earlier ripeners, maybe maybe that will help. But um, I don't see Chardonnay as, as a grape that is going to make Oregon great. It's, right. it's too much competition to the south. They do a great job down there with it. But uh, Pinot Gris, on the other hand, is a, a really wonderful wine, and it has uh, a, a, it has potential here that uh, because it it it's a it's one that can uh, get in the winery and uh, get in the bottle real quick and out on the market very quickly the same as uh, with Riesling it doesn't require any oak and uh, it's as far as cash flow for the winery it's a much better thing than Chardonnay which requires very expensive barrels and longer time in the winery longer time in the inventory mm -hmm. So Pinot Gris, I think, is a much better grape for, for us, and it ripens easily. Why do you think Pinot Noir is so popular, then, as opposed to Pinot Gris and Riesling? I think red wine, in general, is is preferred. Um, personally, I, I, I like Pinot Noir. I like red wines, uh, and I like red wines for different purposes. and, and uh, uh, on on the, anything we can do to um, demonstrate that we're on an equal plane with uh, Burgundy, mm -hmm. and we can do that with Pinot Noir. Uh, we produce, this is the best place in my opinion in the United States to grow Pinot Noir, hands down. It's just This is it. And it's not north of us, it's not west of us mm -hmm. and uh, they can do it in California but uh, that they have so much heat down there that uh, if they could turn the furnace down <laughs> <laughs> they might be able to do it but it, the, they produce them so quick mm -hmm. and they don't have the time on the vine that we do here and generally speaking across the the worldwide wine scene the best grapes of best wines produced from each variety mm -hmm. are produced at the most northerly latitude that you can ripen it. So the grapes need to struggle a bit. They need to struggle, they need time on the vine to mature. So how does the heat affect the taste of the wine then? Particularly, like let's use the example of Pinot in California. So how does that heat affect the Pinot Noirs that they're making in California, and how does our cooler climate um, give us, I guess, a more unique or bolder Pinot? Uh, well, they get they get boldness down there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it, it's a it's 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 too high in alcohol. That's that's one of the big problems, mm -hmm. and it has a kind of a burned flavor, pruny flavor that develops with overripe grapes. Mm -hmm. uh, and if they pick them early, uh, then the, the, it's, it's a lifeless wine. It just doesn't 
it just is just not there. It's not mature. Uh, whereas we get the the ba the balance is the important thing. We balance the alcohol, the flavors, the acidity. It goes through malolactic fermentation and allows the acids to to uh, flourish in that environment. Uh, the balance is the key. So with the recent change in weather patterns, how have you seen that affecting Oregon wine? Or hmm. has it? <laughs> well, it has. Um, I'd say the last two years have been unbelievable. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know that that's a trend. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not totally a believer in climate change or mm -hmm. global warming. Uh, I think it's cyclical and will come back to cooler times. Um, but early on we did have some real cool years and on the edge. And that's, that's, those are times when some of the vineyards that are on marginal sites will have a problem when we have a cool, cool year. Mm -hmm. Everybody can ripen the last two years. And the last two years will be great wines, and uh, uh, even the, even the cheaper products within each winery will 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 have a higher standard than they have in the past. Uh, it it just means that we can, for the first time, pick the grapes at the optimum time. Mm -hmm. Last two years, before that. That hasn't always been the case. And uh, on, on warmer sites, that's, that's been more available. But in cooler sites, that hasn't been available. So that's, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> So, what's your most memorable experience in the wine industry? Hmm. <laughs> wow. Yeah, Carolyn mentioned that. Um, I think my association with uh, the people in the industry Mm -hmm. And of course, association with uh, people who consume your product has been a real important part of our our relationship. Uh, we've we've had some wonderful people that we've met and enjoyed time with mm -hmm. through the years, and it's it's even though we're competitors, we're still friends. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, as as we get older, <laughs> we're we're more friendly because we have more time. You know, mm -hmm. as we're some are retiring and turning the industry over to the younger kids, who, by the way, have a whole lot more energy than we do anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh, I think I think that's that's been the most memorable association, and 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 it continues because every month I meet with uh, the wine growers and 
in the meeting, and uh, we're all we're all still still good friends, and we see each other every month. And actually, in the beginning, uh, when we were living in Portland and just moved here and working with the port, uh, we formed a, a s association, uh, a, a wine tasting group. Uh, there was a, that was 1971, we started a group called Bacchus Caucus. And we'd meet once a month in people's homes. Uh, each person would put on the program and they were responsible for the educational experience. And we'd taste wine. Four whites, four reds, have something to eat in between. That was a standard uh, format. And, and that was 72 we started that, and, and we still get together with those people today. And it's not, it's not so much the wine tasting that we, we do, mm -hmm. but we get together. And wine's a big part of it, but we don't have the formal sit down and taste blind wines. And mm -hmm. So I did, I had a lot of fun with them putting on tastings. Uh, uh, have the same wine in brown bags and different bottles. And, <laughs> and I had a tasting group that was out of Portland. You know, we had one in Salem, a tasting group. And I got them all both together and did a, uh, a tasting, a blind tasting uh, of three wines, a, a white, a rosé, and a red. And they had to tell me which one was which, but they were physically bl blindfolded physically blindfolded, so they didn't see what was in the glass. So mm -hmm. we had somebody across the table from each taster and so they could handle the glasses without tipping them over. But they thought that was ah, <laughs> easy task to do, no problem. <laughs> uh, the first sniff that they took, the, the room quieted down. <laughs> That's when they knew they'd been had. because mm -hmm. <laughs> they. They did not. I think it was less than 50%. Sugar and water. Sweetness and sweetness. So who were the original members of this Bacchus Bacchus? Bacchus Caucus. Bacchus Caucus. Bacchus, the god of wine. Oh, okay. Caucus is a meeting, a mm -hmm. gathering. Yeah. What about them? Who were the original members of this group? They were uh, people that were uh, associated with uh, uh, the Port of Portland. People I worked with. They weren't. They weren't in the industry, and neither was I at that time. I, we just moved to Portland, and there was a there was a wine shop in Portland at uh, downtown called Harris Bert Harris Wine Cellars, and he he did these classes. On why I had one class called Wines of the World, and it was an introductory class. He went to that, and he very formal, uh, sit down and taste the wines. It was, it was very good, very educational. And uh, so we wanted the, the wives to do this. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the the Bert was very chauvinistic about this. He didn't he didn't teach women how to do this. It was a man only. And we thought, wow, how, what are we going to do? So we, we decided to do our own tasting. 
so we got couples together. And so the wives could be part of this, and we, so we did our own. And that's that's what, what formed Bacchus Caucus. And if, he, if he'd have done that, if he'd, if he'd have done the women's class, then maybe Bacchus Caucus wouldn't have <laughs> emanated out of that. But, but uh, uh, it was really a good experience, and we learned a lot about wine, and, and then they all followed my endeavors and buying the land, and they all came out and, and uh, were part of that development too. So our, our friends have all been part of it. And every 4th of July, we had a picnic in the vineyard uh, with a whole lot of people, uh, friends of the kids, mostly parents of the, our kids uh, that they hung around with. So, and that all was great to a certain point. And then the kids matured and then they, they took on new friends. You know, they went to college and and all of a sudden, <laughs> the the parents weren't the friends of our kids anymore. <laughs> we were still friends. <laughs> it was a it was a different environment then. It's uh, all I got there. All right. Well, my last question, or technically the second to last question, uh, where do you think the future of the wine, Oregon wine industry, is going? Hmm. Well, it's, it seems to be developing now and, and uh, becoming larger wineries. Mm -hmm. uh, California folks are coming in uh, and they're buying up places and putting things together to form larger. So, so I think there'll be larger wineries. And then, and then there's a point where you're a small winery and you either got to stay small or, or sell out. Yeah. There's a there's a breaking point there, uh, and I, I think there will be a lot of little wineries, mm -hmm. and then a smaller number of big wineries that will take over. But you know, when you go from nine wineries when we started plant grapes to 630, I think there are now. Uh, that's that's quite an expansion, and I don't know how how much further that can go. It, when you think back of where the wines go from these wineries, mm -hmm. there's not that much shelf space right. in the markets, and so you have to get out and and figure out a way to sell your wines uh, different than the norm, which is go through a distributor and, and, and that's no fun if you're a small winery. It was one of our, our criteria in deciding not to move forward with the winery was we didn't enjoy working with distributors. Right. Uh, they do, uh, they'll distribute your wine, but you really have to get out and do the marketing unless you're a big item in their book. And most of us aren't uh, that big uh, to to be a, a force within their marketing efforts because you got to make money for them. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have a lot of product, that's not the case. So you got to get out and sell your own wines, even though they're distributing for you. And we didn't enjoy those kind of relationships, and 
uh, but there's a limited amount of marketing that you can do and it's changed a lot you know we didn't have wine clubs in the past that's a new thing um, we had tasting rooms that we uh, encouraged people to come to uh, that's an outlet uh, and that's a, that's a good outlet if you can encourage that because you eliminate the retail and the wholesaler in that equation so per bottle you make a lot more than you would going through the retail trade uh, but you're limited on what you can do there how, how you can get people out to, to enjoy the the environment and uh, the wine area that you, you work in and because that has a lot to do with it. Uh, uh, Brooks has been successful here um, and they've created something different than the norm. Um, the, the, effort, the effort that um, uh, we did in the past I myself, when I went out to tour wineries to try to get five wineries in a day, well, that's that's quite a few. Um, but today, it's more of going to one or maybe two places mm -hmm. and spending more time and enjoying that experience and having something to eat to to go along with that and a place for entertaining friends and. Uh, and even at, at Brooks Winery, uh, the tasting room, uh, they offer coffee and also have a couple beers on tap for those who don't drink wine. And, and they, it's become a focal point for the neighborhood, the rural neighborhood that was not here before. And quite often if you go there uh, to Brooks you'll see the farmers <laughs> in the area having a beer or wine or coffee uh, socializing uh, with people they've never socialized with before before this winery came here it's a it's a rural phenomenon <laughs> that that, that didn't occur before. And we didn't encourage it at Hidden Springs. It just wasn't part of our thought process. And mm -hmm. If you didn't drink wine, you shouldn't be there. You know, that sort of thing. That's what, that's what we were there for. But it's changed around. So I, we've experienced people bring, they'll bring friends out here just, to, just for entertainment purposes. And they don't have to clean the house at home or cook dinner, <laughs> but yet they can entertain their friends. Well, those are all the formal questions that I have written down. But is there anything that perhaps I should have asked you or something that you'd like to add uh, before we conclude our interview? Carolyn, you got anything else that? Uh... I did that.
Yeah, but you can do magic with that. Yeah, we can get out the pause. I would be curious if he has advice for today. Yeah. Can that. A what? What kind of advice would you give um, people wanting to enter the wine industry today? Wow. Uh, with or without a big bag of money? <laughs> go with um, not that much money. <laughs> Stick to the dreamers. <laughs> well, it, it's very expensive now to buy an acre of land. Mm. Very expensive. And uh, and especially if you bought one with grapes already on it, it would be it would be a long time before you'd be able to return any money on that. Uh, my advice is to scout around and try to find that elusive piece of property that's still out there that may be wooded or log, log, logs on it or you know treed or something. Uh, finding the right site. Uh, for an inexpensive amount of money, but you might have to put the, the the work in it yourself to clear it and to make sure that it's uh, it's uh, logged off or what's there is taken out. Uh, that would be the inexpensive process to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, there there are a few orchards still around that have are fruiting. Gilbert orchards or some cherries still left that, that have fruit on them will be good sites. Uh, but I'm sure that those have been approached already. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's not very encouraging <laughs> for somebody starting out with not much in the way of funds. Um, or to find somebody that uh, already has the land and maybe is struggling and maybe uh, try to form a partnership and put mm -hmm. some help, put some labor into it. That might, that might work too. Like uh, Al did with me in the winery back in the old days, uh, starting Hidden Springs. And he, he had a portion of the equation and I had the other portion and we were able to put that together. But, uh, uh, that's that's a tough one. Mm -hmm. Now, if you got a big bag of money, it's it's easier. <laughs> <laughs> but you can get some loans these days, mm -hmm. uh, or or chat with your parents about the concept. Uh, it's it's a lot more it's a lot more uh, sellable now that people see that it's already an established industry. I mean, even the banks will talk to you now, whereas before, they they would not. And it wasn't till. I mean, I tried in Salem to get a loan for the winery, and there was no no nobody would talk. Nobody wanted to deal with this unknown, until we had a. Um, a manager come into a Salem bank from California, mm -hmm. and he came in, and, and uh, so I I went to him and told him what we were interested in. And he, oh yeah, they do that all the time down in Napa. 
and he was able to get us a loan. But he had had the experience in California. Yeah. Uh, something else that I wanted to talk about was a little project that I had going uh, within the industry, uh, and that's to create uh, um, a series of wine roads in connection with the scenic byway program. And the concept was uh, a designated wine route from uh, I-5 on 99W mm -hmm. that would go all the way down 99W through Dundee and mm -hmm. McMinnville and on down through Amity and eventually Corvallis and Eugene. And then there would be another one uh, from uh, in uh, 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 <laughs> well, Grants Pass, and then, oh, the Ro Roseburg was the other one. Mm -hmm. So Roseburg, Grants Pass, through Applegate, and that's Medford, Grants Pass area. So it'd be three main areas, arterials, that would go through the state off of I-5 that would be called wine ro routes or wine roads. Mm -hmm. And then off of that, you would have signage for wine, different wine regions. Uh, we almost had that. And, and it, was a, it was a precarious position that we were in because the Department of Transportation dealing with alcohol, they're very cautious about that. Right. But uh, the traffic engineer, who was the main guy behind this, was, was he, I had talked to him for many years about this, and. No, we can't do that. No, no. But he went, took a vacation, and went down to Napa, and he saw what was going on down there. Mm -hmm. And he come back and he called me. Initiated it. I've been rethinking this after this experience, and and uh, so he he proposed it, and we had it going, but. There was some. He was he was scared to do it because uh, he was afraid somebody was going to blow the whistle and hey, we can't do that. Alcohol driving. This doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we we got in a position in the industry. Some people. Well, what about what about me? What about my route? My winery up here. My the route doesn't cover me. And that's all it took. A little little dissension amongst us, and it it failed. And I think that's still a possibility. And I've been talking with a few people, and I'm going to see if I can't get that re going again. Try it. My last ditch effort. <laughs> <laughs> well, I look forward, and you know, hopefully, hearing about. <laughs> You know this project being passed and implemented. Well, I, I hope I can get somebody in the industry that would be take it on and carry it. So far, I haven't, I haven't found that person. 
not, you know, it's outside of each one's wheelhouse. Right. And it's hard to get people to think outside of that. And I talked with Tom up at OWA, and he's he's got so much to do, he doesn't have time to market this sort of concept. So it's going to be take somebody within the industry to do that. Be a good uh, dissertation project for some student. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to pass on that one. <laughs> But I do wish you the best of luck. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, and with that, I guess we'll end the interview. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.